This morning has been a special morning, and I, and I think that you've already seen that, right, with our, with our students leading worship, and, and I don't know about you, I think they did a great job. Would you agree with me? <laughs> Amen. You know, I really am so proud uh, of all of our students. Getting to serve here as a pastor of students is, is an absolute privilege, because I get to see them grow and develop. And, uh, and you have witnessed just a small part of what's going on in our student ministry this morning. The students who are up here leading uh, us in worship, as well as some that are back there in the booth right now, uh, and others are, are part of a group of students that have signed up and committed to being part of what we call LIT, or Leaders in Training. They are student leaders uh, who have, like I said, committed to, to serving and to being trained in how to lead others well, and that's ongoing. And uh, so whether that's through worship and music, as you saw this morning, or through the AV booth, or we even have some students who help out uh, with greeting on a Wednesday night, welcoming others in, they're all part of that. And it's just been awesome to see how God is using them and, and growing them in their own walks with him as they serve him faithfully. And with the help of the like of Harry and Amy as well, just pouring into them. God is doing great things in their life. And I don't know about you, but it makes me really excited for our student ministry and for the life of our body, the life of our church, as we see these young people step up into these positions of service. But this morning is also a special morning because this morning we get to honor and celebrate with our graduating seniors. Now we're thinking uh, primarily and specifically about our high school seniors who are graduating, but we also recognize that there are other students who are graduating and transitioning at this point in their lives as well, uh, those that are graduating from college, and even those that are stepping up from uh, middle school and high school, or stepping up from middle school and elementary school, they're, they're in these moments of transition, and, and those, are, those are milestones that we here at Fellowship like to slow down and, and take note of and celebrate with them as they do that. And so, please hear me, if you're graduating at any level, I want you to hear me say this. We are so proud of you guys. You really have done an awesome job. You're serving the Lord and you're working hard uh, as you do that. And we are proud of you. Would, you. would you affirm that? Were you proud of these guys? Amen. Now, I know that every year I've been here, I've said the same thing, that our, in particular, our high school seniors, they have worked so hard to get here. And every year, it's true, but I think we would all agree that uh, this year, as it was for our seniors last year, has not been easy. It has not been a normal graduate or a normal, normal senior year. There's been all sorts of things that have been thrown at them, and, and the, the pandemic has brought all sorts of changes uh, that has left us in a position where nothing seems sure, nothing seems certain. For our, for our students, from having to deal with being in classes online to being in classes in person to constantly needing to be ready to be quarantined at a moment's notice if they are exposed in the classroom or something like that, it's just been one thing after another. And, and for many of them, it just feels like nothing has been sure. Nothing has been predictable at all. And that, that's, they've, they've handled that with, with class and grace as they've gone through it. And so we recognize that. But we also recognize that that's not just something that our students have felt, right? That's, that's a tension that we have felt right around the entire world. I speak with my folks on a regular basis, and they feel that same tension as well. But especially here in the U.S., I mean, nothing has felt sure. Everything seems to have been, in, in one way or another, in a constant state of change. 
And it, it's been hard because with change comes new expectations, right? We're, we're having expectations put on us in, throughout this entire year from, well, you got to wear a mask, you got to social distance. By the way, I'm a relational person. Social distancing doesn't do well with my soul, right? But we've had to do all these things, and there's all these sorts of extra expectations that have been laid on us that, that have made it difficult, and, and it's left us in a position of kind of going, well, <laughs> what is actually expected of me? What do I need to do? How do I get a win? Because it seems like no matter what choice you make, you're, you're upsetting someone. And I don't know about you, but I've felt that tension and I'm just kind of gone, Lord, just help me not offend someone today, right, in, in how I'm living. Because I want, I want to edify, I want to come alongside, I want to bless. But, but what's expected of us? And it's that idea that I want to think about is in our time this morning. What's expected, or what's expected of us this morning? As believers in Christ, as those that we just sang about who have new life in him, that our lives are defined by the fact that we've been crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but Christ lives in us by faith. What is expected of us as followers of Christ? Because especially for our seniors as they get ready to move on to what God has for them next. There's going to be all sorts of people that are going to try to weigh in and, and place expectations on your life. And so for them, it's important that we consider this. But for all of us, as we think about this reality, I think this is a, this is a question that we would do well to know how to answer what's expected of us. Or more, moreover, what does God expect of us? Because no matter what, what anyone else will say, no matter who else brings expectations to our, to our table, the reality is that what I think we're going to look at this morning, I think this is what needs to be prized above everything else. Because it's from the Word of God. So more, more so, as we think about what God expects of us, in a, in a way to try to help us answer that question, do me a favor and turn over with me to Mark's Gospel. And we're going to be in chapter 12 this morning. Now, I must say, I feel a lot like uh, my brother and, and fellow pastor, Brad, uh, not my blood brother, but my brother in Christ, right, who a number of weeks ago, he was up here and he was preaching on Psalm 23, and he talked about how he, he felt that tension because it's such a well-known passage. And, uh, and I got to say, I feel that same, uh, that same weight this morning because the passage that we're going to look at is very familiar to, to many, if not all of us in this room this morning. And I dare say, it's so familiar that if I were to prompt you, you could quote this passage from heart. But recognizing that, as we get into God's word, would, I, I hope that you would do me a favor and pray with me, even now, quietly in your spirit, that familiarity with God's word wouldn't breed a complacency for it. That instead, that the Holy Spirit would so move in our hearts and stir our affections for him again and for what is the plain teaching of his word. Because that's what I'm praying this morning, because I truly feel that the Lord has led, us to, led me to a passage to bring it before us that I think is going to be really helpful for our seniors as they get ready to go on to what God has next for them, but also for all of us as we consider this reality of what's expected of us as children of God. Now, with that in mind, we're going to pick up reading in verse 28 of chapter 12, but before we dive in there, um, I am going to just quickly give you a heads up. I'm reserving the right to chime in uh, as we read through this passage, right? This is a narrative passage. This is in the Gospels, right? Mark, uh, John Mark wrote this. It's a biographical, historical narrative, theological narrative of Jesus' life. It's a story, so I'm gonna chime in at different places uh, and maybe add a little bit of context as we go through. Are you guys good with that? 
okay? So you've been forewarned, okay? Um, But let's go ahead and dive into Mark chapter 12, verse 28. This is the word of the Lord to us. One of the scribes approached. Okay, pause. All right, I told you I was going to do it. Um, So here we go, right? It says a scribe. What's a scribe? Who is this scribe? What's going on? Okay, well, just to, to give you a little bit of uh, color and, and, and context there. So scribes, according to the Gospels, uh, the four Gospels, what we see is that typically they were Pharisees, scribes, and Pharisee is almost a synonym. Um, but they were experts in the law, these guys. This is, this is who this guy was. But also what we see typically of scribes is that not only did they belong to the Pharisaical group, but they also often belonged to another group, and I believe this guy does too, and it's the group called the Sanhedrin. Now, we know what the Sanhedrin is, right? It's that group of 70 men made up of Pharisees and Sadducees who were responsible for maintaining the, the theological life or the, or the theology of Israel, or more specifically, their, their civil and their religious life, right? And these were men who were in positions of power. Don't, don't miss that, right? They wielded power among the people. And so when it says a scribe approached have that in mind, right? This is, a, this is an expert in the law. This is a guy with power. This is a guy with a position. And that's who he is. He's a Pharisee. He's coming uh, here with the Sadducees and, and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin behind him. But let's look at what he says, right? Because it says that he approached back into the text. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, okay, hold on, pause a second. Again, all right, before we look at his question, What's going on here? Because he says he, he, he approached, he heard them debating, and he heard that Jesus answered them well. So what is going on here? Well, let's back up a little bit, get big, big picture context, and then zoom in on the specific situation, right? We're in Mark chapter 12 of Mark's gospel. By the way, there's only 16 chapters in Mark's gospel. So what does that tell you? We're near the end, right? We're getting close to the end of Mark's record of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, right? There's only a couple of chapters left. We're right up at the end here. And, and actually, if you look into the context, what you see, if you were to skip back into chapter 11, is that we're actually in Passion Week right now, according to Mark's gospel. Jesus has already had the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds, the palm leaves, the coats, all of that has happened, Right? So this is, this is right in the middle of Passion Week. In fact, many theologians and commentators would say that they think this is probably about Wednesday of Passion Week. So Friday's coming. It's only a couple days away. And Jesus, in his time in Jerusalem, as he so often did, he's, he's stirring things up, right? We see that he comes in, the big crowd, the, the, the you know, Palm Sunday celebration that we celebrate every year as he comes in as the, the Messiah and the King. And then soon after that, probably the next day, he goes into the temple. And uh, already the religious leaders are upset because he drew a crowd and they called him the Messiah. Like, that's a pretty big deal. And then he goes into the temple and he clears out the temple. He, 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 te- he clears out all the money changers and all the, the merchants who, who are cheating the people. And wouldn't you know it, the religious leaders are not happy about that either because the reality is he's showing them up. And what we see is that they are just, they're, they're beside themselves and so they get together and they plot because they want to figure out a way to get this guy gone. He's causing too much hassle. He's, he's stirring the crowd in too many ways. We need to get rid of him. So how can we do that? 
And so they went into overdrive trying to figure out a way to trap him, trying to find out a way or to, to figure out a way to maybe trap him in a heresy that they could use or at least something that would give them an excuse to go to the Romans and ask them to take care of this guy. That was their goal. That was their hope. But if you, if you read, you know that it doesn't really go to plan. What we see even in chapter 12, beginning at verse 13, is that the Pharisees are sent. And they come to Jesus and they ask him about whether they should pay taxes to Caesar. It's kind of a civil thing. They're trying to trap him there. That doesn't go well for them. It, it doesn't end the way they want it to. Jesus handles the situation masterfully and they kind of go away tail between their legs. And so that didn't work. So then they send the Sadducees. And uh, they come to Jesus asking a question. By the way, Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're so sad, you see. And sorry, we had to get that in. But... They come and they ask a question about marriage and about uh, eternity and how that's all going to work. And again, Jesus just handles it beautifully and points them back to Scripture and kind of puts them back in their box. And, and it doesn't go well for them. In fact, every single attempt that the Sanhedrin has made to trap Jesus, it has failed miserably. It has only served to promote Jesus and increase his fame and his acclaim among the people and to make them look bad. And so what's interesting is that I believe that this guy, this scribe who approaches Jesus, is now the third wave of a coordinated attempt to trap Jesus. Now, why do I say that? I say that because in the parallel account in Matthew's gospel, chapter 22, verse 34, it says that when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. They essentially had a quick conference, and they were like, okay, nothing has worked. How do we take this guy out? Like, seriously, what can we do? And they get together and they come with this coordinated tent, this united front through this scribe. This is what's going on. So big picture, you know where we're at in Mark. Zooming in, he's right in Passion Week, cross is only a couple days away. And let's look at what this scribe asks him to try to trap him. Look at what it says. He says, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? Now let me just say, that's a good question. You know, that, that, there, that's an interesting one to explore and, and to see where, where things might go on that. But why are they asking that question? Why do they think that's going to trap Jesus? And why did they land on that? Well, I think there's a couple of things that feed into it. First of all, uh, why they ask the question that relates to the, the writings of Moses, right? Uh, first of all, something helpful to know is that the Pharisees, they looked at the whole Old Testament, right? The, uh, the writings of Moses, the, writ- the historical writings and the prophets, they looked at it all as the, the word of God. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they only took the first five books, the Pentateuch. They said that, that once Moses died, God didn't really speak anymore. So they, they hung out on that. So if they wanted to come with a coordinated attempt, then they had to come with something that everybody agreed on, which took them to the writings of Moses. So that's why I think they're coming, dealing with commands. But again, why do they think that was going to trap him? Why do they think that would be something that would trip him up? Well, I think a lot of it comes from the, the fact that I think they thought that Jesus didn't really care about Moses or the law. And the reason for that, I mean, think about it. Put yourself in their shoes. Every single time, or almost every time that Jesus interacted with the Pharisees or the scribes or the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, whatever name you want to give them, almost every single time Jesus opposed them. And, and he took them to task for their religious zeal and their, their kind of legalism. And so 
Every single time they felt opposed. He, Jesus even called them names. Like, you're a brood of vipers. Like, you're whitewashed tombs. Jesus didn't pull any punches with these guys. And from their point of view, they're like, well, we're just trying to live out the law of Moses. And if he treats us like that, then what does that say about how he thinks about Moses? And so I think that's where they're thinking they're going to trap him. That if, if they can get him to say something that disregards Moses, they know that he'll lose popularity among the people of Israel. So that'll be a good deal, right? But also, if, if they ask him this question and he adds a new command that no one's ever heard before, well then, hey, that's adding to the words of God. That's heresy right there. We can get him on that. I think this is what's going on. This is what they're trying to trap him with. And this is what is in their mind. So, with all that said, let's have a look at Jesus' answer. Jesus answered them in verse 29. The most important, the most important command is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. <laughs> you just do me a favor. Think of what's going on in the Sadducees' heads or the Pharisees' heads in this moment. Like they wanted to trap him. And that did not go well once again. Because what did Jesus do? How did he answer them? He took them to two passages in the writings of Moses to, to kind of give the answer that he was going to give. Right? The first, the most important command, hear is Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is directly out of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The Shema. That is Moses's, one of Moses' final addresses to the people of Israel before he dies. And so he goes straight there. And then the second one, love your neighbor as yourself, he took that straight from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Like plucked it right out of the heart of all the regulations of the law. And he's got them. And they realize, oh, <laughs> we can't get this guy. He answers them masterfully. And when you look at that, when you think about that, he's just summed up the entire law in two lines. Even if you were to just take the Ten Commandments, right? Numbers one through four all deal with loving God. And then five through ten all deal with loving others. Well, he's just nailed it. And what's amazing is that they know it. They know it. Now, we're going to come back and look at Jesus' answer in a minute. But before we do that, I want to take just a, a minute to, to look at their response. And let's look at the rest of this passage here. Um, so let's jump down to verse 32. It says, then the scribe said to him, well, actually, before I, before I read that, let me just say that I do think this scribe was at least a little bit more honest or genuine than the ones that had come before him. He seems to, to yes, have been part of this coordinated attempt to take or to trap Jesus, but, but he does seem to be a little bit more genuine and honest. And let me show you why, right? Verse 32, then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. This guy, he, he's at least willing to admit that Jesus just nailed it. 
And what's interesting is that this guy seems to, seems to have an understanding here that, that the law isn't just a bunch of regulations to be observed. That there's a heart issue, there's a spiritual reality going on. Because even at the end there of verse 33, he, he references to Hosea 6.6, 6, which says that obedience is more desirable to God than sacrifices and offerings. God wants our obedience, he wants our heart, not just our actions. And so this guy seems to get it. He, he admits that Jesus answered well which is an incredible thing for him to actually admit. Because in admitting that Jesus answered well, he's also just admitted that they once again failed to trap him, which is a pretty amazing thing for him to fess up to. But in response to that, let's look at how Jesus dealt with him. Now, one of the things that, that I didn't say earlier, Mark's gospel, one of the things that Mark has a, has a kind of a point of is that he wants to point out that Jesus is the servant, right? He's come to serve. And so with that in mind, just look at how Jesus responds to him. Because remember, Jesus knows exactly where he is and his timeline. He knows that the cross is only a couple of days away, and yet he's come to be a servant and to draw men to his father. So look at what he does. Look at how he serves this guy to draw him that little bit closer. Verse 34, Jesus, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely the scribe, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That's a, that's a pretty incredible thing for Jesus to say because at one and the same time, he's just complimented this guy, complimented him insofar as there are some people who are really far away from the kingdom of God, like way out there. This guy was not one of them. He was really close. He was, he was not far from the kingdom of God. But at the same time, it's also a warning. It's a warning because close is good, but close is not good enough. You see, close proximity to the truth doesn't mean that you're saved. And so for this guy, yes, he is not one of those guys who's way far out there on, the, on this hairy edge, right? He's, he's close, but he still needs to take that next step of faith to enter into the kingdom of God through trust in what God has provided for him. And by the way, this is not only a warning for him, but this is also a warning for us This is a warning for anyone sitting in this room or anyone watching online. Does this describe you? Not far away, really close, but still not in. This is a warning that we are, that close is good, but close is not good enough. We need to enter in by the gate, Jesus Christ himself, through repentance and putting our full trust in him and living for him, following him, striving to obey him and to do what is expected of us. We are to turn from our sin and live for him. That's what Jesus is pointing in and drawing this guy's attention to close is good, but close is not good enough. And notice how they respond at the end of verse 34. It says that no one dared to question him any longer. Find that interesting. They, they recognize that Jesus has just bettered them at every single turn. And so they go away. By the way, they don't go away to stay away. They don't go away to leave him alone. They go away to regroup. Because remember, Friday's coming. And they're going to get what they want or what they think they want. But for right now, they back off. 
because Jesus has just wowed them in so many ways. But let's go back to what Jesus answered. And let's, let's take a look there, because what did he say? What did he clarify was the most important thing for us? Or what, how did he clarify what was expected of us who are children of the king? Well, the first thing that I, I think we can all notice is that screaming out of this passage is this idea of love. Love being a central theme here in Jesus' answer. And, and that's, that, that makes complete sense because love is a central theme of Christianity, period. The, the, the heart of Christianity, the heart of what it is to be a follower of God is to be a lover of God. So much so that if we're not lovers of God, if we reject the love that he has offered, if we reject a loving relationship with him, then we find ourselves in a place outside of that love. And if we persist in that until the day we leave this earth, then we will reside in that reality for all of eternity as well, separated from him. This is why this is so important, because love is right in the core of it, and more specifically, love your God. Now, before we jump ahead, let me, let me start where Jesus starts, because that's really important. Verse 29, the most important command, he said, is this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. As I said earlier, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This is known as the Shema. Everyone who is around them would have understood this, would have known it. They would have quoted it to themselves daily, okay? This was nothing new to them, but don't miss what Jesus is doing here because he could have just skipped ahead to the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but he didn't. He started here. So why did he do that? Well, one of the things that we need to understand is that this is a declaration that there is one Lord. There is one God, and we are to know him. Why was that a big deal? Well, think about it, right? In Jesus' time, as well as back in the day with Moses and the people of Israel in the desert, right? The, the people of Israel were surrounded by nations who worshipped other gods, who worshipped all sorts of other pagan gods that were the, the making of demonic and human origin, Okay? And so what Moses has said and what Jesus has clarified is that, hey, remember, there is one God and you need to know who he is. Start there. Know your God. But there's also something else here that's beautiful that I don't want us to miss. It's, it's hidden in the language, but it's so important. Because right from the beginning, God has, God has self-disclosed. He's never hidden himself, so to speak. We may not have always understood it, but he has always been honest with us. Look at what it says. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, that word for one is important because in the Hebrew, as Moses wrote it down, that's a specific word. I'm, I'll, I may butcher if any like Hebrew scholars in the room, I'm going to try to pronounce it. I'm sorry if this is wrong, but it's, it's the word that's had, right? And it, it's a word that speaks of unity, which is interesting, but Moses clarified why. Moses, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, used the exact same word. When he spoke of how a man will leave his, husband and, or leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two will become one, ahad, flesh. What's the point of that? Why, why am I saying that that's an important thing for us to recognize? The word that's being used to describe God's oneness is not a mathematical singularity. It is a unity of persons. 
It is a loving unity of persons, specifically a tri-unity, or what we come to know typically today as Trinity. This is pointing directly to the triune nature of God right here. And Jesus is, is wanting to highlight that. He's saying, you got to know who your God is. Why, why do we start there? Why not just skip ahead to the love of your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Why start here? Because we need to know who he is if we're truly going to love him, if we're truly going to interact with him. And when we come into a relationship with the triune loving God of the universe whose love has overflowed to us through creation and through redemption and God's big story, when we come into relationship with him, that stirs our affections. And it should this is why Jesus starts here. You've got to know your God, and when you do, it's going to stir your heart for him. So we start off with knowing our God. And when we know who he is, then we realize that we have been called and instructed to love our God. So know your God and love your God. How are we to do that? Says it right there, plain as day. Verse 30, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Pure and simple. What does that mean? Simply, it means love God with everything you are. Everything you are. If you wanted to break it down into its component parts, heart, right? Love the Lord with all your heart. In biblical and Hebrew thinking, the heart was the core of who you are. The heart is the place or the source of all of our affections, our thoughts, our words, our actions. It is the very core of us. And so when it says love him with all of your heart, it's saying, hey, set your affections on him. Love him with your deepest, truest self. Love the Lord with all your soul. It's interesting in Scripture, in scripture soul is typically uh, linked to the place of emotion. It's, it's seen as the seat of emotion in, in many ways. And in Matthew chapter 22, verse 38, Jesus is, is saying that his soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Soul and emotion go together. Love him with all of your mind. Typically for us as Western thinkings, we think mind, that's the place of reason. But in scripture, it might be better understood to be the will. So that thing that drives you forward into action. And then finally, love him with all your strength. This is something that Jesus added, but it points to the reality that again, we should give all of our physical energy to this pursuit. We love him with everything we are. No divided allegiances. No loving this a little bit and loving him a little bit. No, we love him with all we are. He is to be our singular pursuit. This is what it's getting at. And we love him with all we are because we know who he is. Notice the order of this. Know your God and then love him. And when you come to know him, you understand that we love him not because we loved him first, but because he loved us first. And our love is a response to that. And we know how he loved us. He demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came and he made a way where there was no way, where we could not do it ourselves. He lived the life we couldn't, died the death that we deserved, and rose again victorious on the third day, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
This is who he is, and when we know it, our hearts are stirred in affection because we realize he has lavished his love on us. Therefore, we love him with all we are in response. This is what is expected. This is the first part of what's expected. But there is a second part that is there that's linked that we cannot separate. Look at verse 31. Jesus said, and the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Love your neighbor. So know your God, love your God, love your neighbor, right? This is what's expected of us. And these two things, loving your God and loving your neighbor, are inextricably inextricably linked. They are unavoidably linked. You can't separate them. So much so that you cannot do one without the other first. We cannot The the reality is that we do not have the resources in and of ourselves to love our neighbor the way we are called to without God dwelling in us first. Because here's the deal, I'm being honest, I cannot love the person who spits in my face the way I'm called to. I cannot love that person who leaves that mean and hurtful tweet or, or comment in the comment section on social media. I don't have the resources in and of myself to love them as I ought to. That's why I need the Lord living and dwelling in me and loving them through me. It's him doing it. I'm, I simply got to submit to that because I can't do it on my own because I'm not the source of love, but he is. And so I need to be connected to him first. Now, there are some people who would say, but hold on, Tim, there are lots of people out in the world today who don't know the Lord, don't know who he is, and yet They say that they love each other. Are you saying that they don't really love one another? Let me put it to you like this. I believe that we are all created in the image of God. We have his fingerprint on us, and as such, we were created as relational human beings designed to care and to care for each other, to look after each other. And so I do believe that there are people out there who, even though in absence of a, of a relationship with the Lord, they care for people around them. But don't forget that sin has marred everything. Sin has corrupted everything. And so, yeah, I don't believe that they can fully and truly love others the way that God expects them to on their own. Because here's the deal, right? Love is supposed to be outward, right? Just in, in a reflection of God. He is an outward-focused God, a love-giving and a life-giving God, and we're supposed to reflect that, to love him and to love others. But we can't because sin, what sin does is it says, hey, that love that's supposed to go out, let's just take it and turn it right back in and be selfish with it. Love self, that is what we do in absence of a relationship with the Lord. That's what we focus on. And so no, we cannot love fully, truly, as God intends for us to do without first having a relationship with him because it's only through that relationship, it's only through a relationship with Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that that allows me to be empowered and to be trained to know how to love others as I'm called to. But in absence of that, I can't do it. And yet, this is what is expected. We are to love others. And if we are, if we are to love others, we must recognize that we must love God first. But, but also note that when you're in a relationship with the Lord, when you're walking with him aright, then, then that should be a natural outflow of that. 
That should come pretty, pretty naturally because it, it should be a natural effect of being in right relationship with the Lord. Because here's the deal, I don't know about you, but you should not be able to contain the love of God that he pours out on us, the, the triune love that has been given to us. In, my, uh, in John 17, the Lord says that they would know that you have loved them with the same love that you have loved me, right? We have been God has poured out extravagant love on us, and that should not be able to be contained. Just like we are supposed to reflect the triune God who overflowed with love to us, if we're in right step with him, if we're walking aright with him, then the love that we enjoy with him should be so extravagant that it should overflow to those around us as well. That's the way this is supposed to work. But here's a note on that. To love others well, you need to be connected to the source. If you're not loving your neighbor well, not loving your neighbor as you love yourself, then can I encourage you, check yourself. Because you may not be as connected to the source as you think you are. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. I I follow things on social media. I rarely interact because... I just, I, 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 there are times I really struggle, but, but I, I use social media to keep a track on what's going on and, and what, what the general ideas of, our, of the world are. And there are people out there that, that I see claim to be Christians, and yet in the comment section of some of what we see on social media, they will eviscerate other people. Can I just say, that ought not be. If we are children of the king, then we are to love him and to love others. You cannot separate them. You cannot just say, well, I'm loving God, but forget them. No, you've got to love both. And you've got to, yes, present truth, but you present it in love. You do it with all patience and kindness, just as the way he treats us. This is something that I think we as the church and we as the body of Christ, we need to be careful of because we are so easily forgetful of this reality that we are called to love others. And this is not an excuse to look at it and kind of go, I need more self-esteem, this should be self-love, right? No, this is an outward-focused thing. Love others, love your neighbor as yourself with the same care and attention that you give your own body. So as we wrap things up, as I try to draw things together for us this morning, let me just put it to you like this. What is the greatest command? What what does God really expect of us who are his children? Pure and simple, know your God, love your God because you know him, and then love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what's expected of us. And so to to our seniors who are getting ready to head out, and really to any of us or anyone who's watching online, hear me on this. This This is my charge to you seniors and everybody else listening, but this is also our charge from God. No matter what's happening, if we are going to be followers of Christ, if we're going to represent him and be ambassadors here on earth for his name's sake, then no matter what other expectations come upon us, please don't forget this, because this needs to be prioritized above everything else. You are to know your God. You are to pursue him, study him, learn him, know who he is. And then once you do that, recognizing that he's this, love, this God of love and grace that overflows to us when we don't deserve it, then you turn around and you love him with all that you are, every single fiber of your being. 
And then out of the overflow of that relationship that you enjoy with the triune God of the universe, the one and only Lord, you allow that love to flow out to those around you and you love others as you love yourself with the same care and attention that, he, or that we give ourselves. This is what is expected of us. Church, this is, this is it. The most important command is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Know your God. Love your God. Love your neighbor. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you this morning that your word is so clear. Lord, I thank you that as we think about our seniors, as they get ready to head on to what is next for them, what you would have for them next, Lord, I thank you that you don't leave us in any, in any conundrum or wondering what we are to do, but you've made it very plain what is expected of us as your children. Lord, I pray that as we go from here, both seniors graduating and as the church of Christ, Lord, that we would go with this clear in our minds, that we are to pursue you, to pursue knowing you with everything that we are, that we are to love you with our deepest, truest self, with everything that we are. And Lord, would you allow that love to overflow to those around us? Would you allow it to be the fragrance of Christ wherever we go so that it would draw others onto you? Lord, help us to be bold in this. Help us to put you first, to prioritize this above every and everything else and anything else because this is the greatest command. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for Christ who makes it possible who draws us into a relationship with himself in the first place, with you in the first place, and gives us what we need to accomplish this, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, empowering us for what we are called to do. Lord, help us to live it out in a way that pleases you and honors you for your name's sake and for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and by his Spirit.